0: Good morning. Knowing how much Jim hates actually doesn't hate, he despises stuff like we just did. I want to thank you James for taking that risk and sparing me from having to risk my deep friendship with my brother Jim. Now you're on his dirty list, but you know, I can't do anything about that. So and uh but, you know, we, we, we don't like to do that every time we have birthdays, right? Because if we did that, we'd forget somebody and then somebody would be offended and we'd be doing it every week. So. But it's definitely certain milestones worth marking, aren't there? So uh, speaking of Jim, you know, he's doing this Sunday night seminar, People of God in a Hostile Culture. And uh, to, today and next week we're going to get just a little bit of the same thinking. How do people of God deal with a hostile culture when we talk about walking wisely? And today's first part of a two-part message, and then next week we'll hear the rest. So, but if you want it in way, way more detail, uh, you should still attend the Sunday night seminar. You can still go. Uh, you can pick up where you are. There's notes from previous weeks. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't done that yet, to consider coming to the Sunday night seminar. So any of the major issues of 2020, this, what a year. I mean, isn't this a crazy year? All the things that have happened, and then last week the president gets COVID, and I mean, the uh, dumpster fire of a debate and all that kind of stuff. Any of those would have made it a tough year all by itself, starting with the COVID shutdowns in March, back when we couldn't meet. We didn't meet for almost three months, followed by racial unrest in many cities across our nation and around the world. And now these issues and other things that were already in place before 2020 are fueling the flames, it would seem, and contributing to the nastiest and most divisive presidential campaign I can remember. It's enough to make you long for the good old days, except you know what? Actually, if you know anything about history, the good old days were really not much better than today, especially when we're talking about politics. We quickly forget That without minimizing the deep divisions that we have today, definitely those are very real, without minimizing the level of hatred and vitriol in our divisive public discourse these days, in conversations about almost anything, in conversations about masks, in conversations about racial issues, in conversations about political candidates, we forget that Scripture tells us there's nothing new under the sun. There have been plagues throughout history that have killed millions of people. There has been hatred due to race or national origins throughout history. There has been deep divisions over uh, who's the best national leader or who's the party that should take control of our, con- uh, of our country. And again, in light of that dumpster fire that uh, I purposely didn't watch this past week because I kind of knew that's what it would be, I want to show you an idea of some TV ads and this is what presidential campaigns of 1800 might have looked like if there was television this is from the actual words of these candidates in the 1800 election okay i'm sure you all remember that one right jim maybe does but so give this a listen
1: John Adams is a blind, bald, crippled, toothless man who wants to start a war with France. While he's not busy importing mistresses from Europe, he's trying to marry one of his sons to a daughter of King George. Haven't we had enough monarchy in America? I'm Thomas Jefferson, and I approve this message because John Adams is a hideous, hermaphroditical character with neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. If Thomas Jefferson wins, murder, robbery, rape, adultery and incest will be openly taught and practiced. The air will be rent with the cries of the distressed, the soil will be soaked with blood and the nation black with crimes. Are you prepared to see your
0: dwellings in flames, female chastity violated, children writhing on a
1: pike? I'm John Adams and I approve this message. Because Jefferson is the son of a half-breed Indian squaw raised on hoe cakes. And Hamilton is a Creole bastard brat of a Scotch pedlar.
0: The nastiest, most negative elections candidates
1: have taken dirty to a whole new... It can month. seem like a return to civility is not possible.
0: I'm going to remember some of those. Uh, next time that Jim Grinnell and I disagree in an elders meeting, I'm going to say, you nutmeg, hatch-faced dealer, or you hat-faced nut... whatever it was. can we get whatever that is at the top of the screen moved off of there let's probably drag it to the other side i don't know what that is actually and why it's on the uh house screen so there we go okay sort of kind of okay and then you're also going to have to give me a Technology wonderful. I think the aliens are invading. Up there, just you, you look like a, a many armed man. <laughs> you should, if you could only see what I'm seeing. You know, and you probably want to do that. Turn around, then you don't have to look at me. So, Okay, are we good? Now I need to have, make sure I have control of this screen here. Okay, and then remember, this is, this is where you got to get the audio up just a little higher on that. Okay, we'll try again. Okay, here we go. Now, you saw this from the 1800s. Here's a more recent example, and I don't have it. So would you click inside the house screen? <laughs> yeah, the left one. No, the right one. Okay, go go down to the bottom and there's PowerPoint slideshow. Hover over that and click on that and that should put the the uh the and I could do what I do in Bible Bowl sometimes when Steve's not there, I say to the kids, wait a second, and I can run up under the booth. So There we go. Okay. Ex- except now we're going to see that other video again. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to cl- flip past it. Okay. Just pretend I'm up here. Just, just just pretend that I'm up here. And the cool thing about these uh, microphones is I can talk to you from anywhere in the building. So, okay. Okay. What we're going to do is we're going to go right here. We're going to go there.
1: Uh,
0: We're going to end this first.
1: I want for America. My mom, truth, justice, and the American way. What my husband wants for America is to bust communists along with terrorists into your neighborhood to mess up your farmers and (laughs) kill
0: It would have been better better if it worked the way it was supposed to. to. You just have to (laughs) trust me on that. that. Okay, let's (coughs) just skip skip past that, Steve, and get to the next slide.
1: What I want for America is apple pie, mom, truth, justice, and the American way. What my opponent wants for America is to bus communists along with terrorists into your neighborhood to mess up your flowers and kill your kittens and puppies. What's your vision for America? Do you want America the beautiful or do you want dead kittens and puppies? On November 6th, cast your vote against commie terrorist puppy killers and for America the beautiful and for me. I'm Herman Hogelbogel, and I approve this message. Paid for by the Committee of Citizens United for America the Beautiful and opposed to dead puppies.
0: I'm sorry. It really wasn't worth it. (laughs) It really wasn't worth all that trouble. So, okay. All right. With that foolishness over, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Ephesians? We're going to look at first on chapter 4. Uh, verse 17 through 20. We're going to spend most of the next couple weeks in Ephesians with other looks at other passages. So let me read this from Ephesians 4 beginning with verse 17. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. So the Gentiles, and here the Gentiles, we're simply talking about those who are not believers in Christ, are darkened in their understanding. Paul writes to the Ephesians that the way the Gentiles live their lives is futile. It's vain, it's worthless, it's empty. Why? Because their understanding of life is darkened. They're blinded in some ways, is what Scripture is telling us here. And what's more, they are willfully ignorant of the truth because their hearts are hard. Consequently, what happens? It says, Paul says, they give themselves up to sensuality and every kind of impurity. That means they just kind of agree to go with the flow. Okay, this is what it is. They don't even bother to try to resist or to flee these sins and they don't recognize them as sins in many cases. They don't seek positive change, they don't struggle or fight against them in any way. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? This was true at the time Paul wrote this to the Ephesian church. It's true today as we gather here at TCF. There is no one righteous. What Paul's talking about is humanity's sin nature on display. And we've seen it on display throughout history. We see it in our Bibles. And today, if you open a newspaper or turn on the radio or television news or read news online, we see the practical outworking of these things every day. We see it in the world. We see it all around us. What's more, we see some of this impurity, much of this sensuality, as Paul wrote, not only tolerated, but celebrated. And that's where we're going to begin this morning. But today, and continuing then with part 2 next week, we're going to be looking at several verses in the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, and some of the surrounding context of that primarily in the next chapter. So think for a moment about this passage that we're going to read here in just a second, and we'll look at the verses that preceded here shortly. If you're in Ephesians 4, would you turn now to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to begin with verse 15 there. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So today's part one of a two-part message called Wise Living, and part one's subtext is from this passage, as is next week's, and part one's subtext is the days are evil. Next week, part two's subtext is also from this passage, and that will be redeeming the time. So remember a chapter earlier we just read a moment ago from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul encourages us not to walk as the Gentiles do. You know what another way to say that is? Don't live like a sinner. That's what he's saying. Don't live like a sinner. He's encouraging us to do that. Walk is a simply a way of saying how you live your life. It's just simply a way of talking about your behavior. And it's a consistent theme in this letter to the Ephesians. In fact, Paul uses this word walk, or some translations do say live, five times in chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians. This is part of how the Word of God serves as a guide to life, a guide to our attitudes, a guide to our behavior, as well as a window on what the world looks like And we have to remember this too, it's what any of us used to look like and still would look like apart from Christ. We need to keep that reality constantly in mind as we look at this theme, the days are evil. Apart from Christ, the truth is we are no different. Even in Christ, we are capable of sinning. Let's never look at the sinfulness of humanity out there without also remembering that we too are sinful. It's a lot easier to just look at the problems out there without looking at the problems in here. And without the redemption of Christ, we are just as lost, just as much without hope. Does anybody want to dispute Paul's contention here in verse 16 that the days are evil? Anybody want to argue that point? It's pretty easy for us to see. It's important that we realize God gets to define what's evil and what's good. And he does it very clearly in his word. We can cite dozens of examples of this reality, but we're going to mention just a few this morning to highlight this theme. How about, for example, abortion, which continues to kill more than 600,000 unborn children each year, in the US alone, almost 50 years after it became legal across our nation. And you know what? Continuing with this theme, it's defended and even celebrated as a right by politicians, by corporations, by the media. That is evil, folks. That is evil. There's the sad reality of child abandonment and abuse. There's slavery today. There's slavery in the world. There's genocide today in many places in our world where people with power have been attempting to wipe out whole people groups. It's still happening from the Uyghurs in China to the recent Rwandan genocide to the attempted genocide of the Yazidi people where our own missionaries Ray and Denise Thorn are working with those who were part of that attempted genocide. And these are just the things that are happening today. You know we can look back through history And we can see that Paul's words have always been true. The days are evil. The Holocaust of Hitler's Nazi Germany, Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge killing of millions of his fellow Cambodians, and the evil of our nation's history of slavery and racism. These are just a few examples of how the evil of humankind reaps terrible consequences for decades and centuries afterwards. There's nothing new under the sun. Then there's the sexual immorality issues in our nation and in the world. How many of you have heard about the Drag Queen Story Hour? Just a couple. It's interesting that very few of us have heard about that. It's actually happened even here in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, in Oklahoma City. Here's a description of what this is from their own website. Drag Queen Story Hour is just what it sounds like, drag queens reading stories to children in libraries, schools, and bookstores. Drag Queen Story Hour captures the imagination and play of the gender fluidity of childhood, and it gives kids glamorous, positive, and unabashedly queer role models. In spaces like this, kids are able to see people who defy rigid gender restrictions and imagine a world where people can present as they wish where dress-up is real. Not surprisingly, Christians and others have resisted this. But the American Library Association is all in. Here's what they say on their website about this. Many libraries across the country have been both hosting or participating in drag queen story hours. A few have experienced pushback from some members of their community. To support libraries facing challenges, we have established this collection of resources. We will continue to add it and welcome your contributions. ALA, through this action and those of its members, is instrumental in creating a more equitable, diverse, and inclusive society. This includes a commitment to combating marginalization and underrepresentation within the communities served by libraries through increased understanding of the effects of historical uh, co- inclusion. Now, why is this kind of thing troubling? Well, we're not even going to spend this morning lamenting the reality of sexual immorality or even the promotion of this to young children. It's happening, my brothers and sisters. That would be like lamenting the fact that there are liars. It's the fallen world we live in. And we see Scripture's clear condemnation of sexual immorality of all kinds as sinful. Because though the Bible does list sexually immoral behavior among a litany of sins and singles it out in many places. We're going to take a look at that idea, as we'll note in a moment. Uh, the reality of this sin in our midst is only the tip of the iceberg. For our purposes this morning, it's just a very handy, a very well-documented and easily illustrated example of sin in our culture. And that's because the root of this sin and all sin is rebellion against God. Rebellion against God's absolute right as the maker of the universe to tell us the best way to live our lives. You know, we could realistically say, if we're going to be realistic about the nature of our culture, we could realistically say this is to be expected in our sexually sick and broken culture. In some ways, we could even make a case that a root cause of sexual immorality is selfishness. We could use selfishness as an example of sin in our culture. But selfishness is not often celebrated to the degree that sexual immorality is. Anyway, the passage of Scripture that comes to mind repeatedly after declaring not just homosexuality but a long list of other things to be sins against the Holy God the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman church in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Another version reads like this, They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, They encourage others to do them too. This is where we are in our culture. This is where we're living, celebrating sin, giving approval, even encouraging others to sin. But sin's always present in any culture. But I think the reason it feels to many Christians today, especially those who are older, like the culture has reached a very negative tipping point, is because our Western Western culture has so long, for such a long time, been at least informed by, and to some degree shaped by, Judeo-Christian principles. But today our culture has completely blown past the shame and disapproval that previously seemed to accompany most sinful behaviors. It's now to the point of actually celebrating things that weren't even talked about in polite company as little as 20 25, 30 years ago. As believers in in America, you know, we've been spoiled. We've been spoiled. We've gotten somewhat complacent because for most of our history, much of our culture was significantly informed by, and later at least gave lip service to a Christian understanding of sin, even when the reality is that we're anything but a truly Christian nation and probably have not been for some time if we ever were truly a Christian nation. But Scripture tells us the days are evil. And somehow, though Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, which says the days are evil, has always been in our Scriptures, and it's always reflected the truth about the world we live in, we're kind of shocked now and surprised that this is more visibly true in ways we couldn't have imagined very long ago. Yes, the days are evil. But the days were every bit as evil, if not more so, in Paul's day. And I've mentioned this already a couple times. Ecclesiastes tells us in one nine that there's nothing new under the sun. Any cursory look at the history of Bible times will tell you that the evil of our day is certainly no worse, and in many ways probably not as bad as the evil of the days in which Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. In the verses leading up to our primary text of Ephesians 5:15 through 17, we see more of Paul's indicators about the evil in his day, which is just as obvious to us today. So let's take a moment to highlight some of this. This is uh, a longer passage. Hang in there with me. Be listening for the various descriptions we see in this passage, Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 16, the descriptions that Paul writes of sin and evil. He starts with verse 1, "...therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love." Remember, we see that that means live. Live it out. Live out love. "...as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints." Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So Paul lists several things here that the Ephesian Christians knew were very prevalent in their day. And though not exclusively so, much of it has to do, again, with sexual immorality. In verse 3, Paul writes that sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. Well, this is one place, sadly, that believers have lost the public relations battle in our culture because these sins are, quite unfortunately, regularly named among Christians in the sense that Christians fall into these kinds of sins way too often. The fact that so many very public failures of Christian leaders or political leaders who claim the name of Christ has been sexual in nature sadly gives ammunition to those who would dismiss these standards as unattainable and unrealistic and no longer applicable in our modern world. It also opens up Christians to the charges of hypocrisy. And you know what? They're right when they charge us with hypocrisy. Of course, this doesn't change, and this is important for us to remember, even when Christians are hypocrites, it doesn't change in any way the truth of what Paul writes. God's just and righteous standards remain God's just and righteous standards, whether we as Christians live up to those standards or not. Sexual immorality here in Ephesians and in most places in the New Testament is from the Greek word porneia, from which we get our English word, pornography. It's a catch-all phrase that really includes any kind of sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. And this is why, you know, a lot of times Christians are criticized about always majoring on sexual things. You hear that? You heard that? It's just sex. It's just about sex. But this is why we see sexual sins so often singled out and emphasized as such a serious offense against God. We read later in the same chapter, Ephesians 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two become one flesh. We, we know that one, right? We've heard that in weddings. But then the next verse, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. So Paul's telling us here that the original creation of God, of the husband and wife union, is modeled on the union of Jesus and his church. Marriage from the beginning of creation was created by God to be a reflection of and patterned after Christ's relationship to his church. This is why sexual sin is so serious, even in many ways more so than other sins. This kind of sin defiles the holy vision of Christ and his church like other sins don't. Not that other sins are okay, but this is why we see it majored on so often. Why do you think the enemy of our souls seems to revel in this sin so much? Paul writes this in verses 5 and 6, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So let's also be clear here. There is redemption for the repentant sinner, sexual sins or any sins. But Paul's writing here of those who ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit and continue in these kinds of sins. He says quite clearly, and this is pretty sobering, these people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He says quite clearly that the wrath of God comes upon these. So the days are evil. But Paul is doing more than just simply pointing out this reality in our day, which is just as true uh, in his day as it is in ours. He's concerned for our spiritual safety. That's why he's pointing this out. Note the beginning of verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. This admonition is sandwiched between two affirmations of the fate of those who continue in these sins. And the reason for this admonition is very easily seen in our day. Let me read a quote from a Hollywood actor that illustrates for us this problem. But first you might think, Why should we care what a movie or TV actor thinks about anything? And it's true. I don't care. You shouldn't care. You shouldn't care. But the fact is that many, many people in our culture do care. They not only care what actors or celebrities or athletes or social media influencers think about the issues of our time, but they are deeply influenced by what they think And they are even more so influenced by the similar messages that come out in their product, movies, television, music. These are given kind of with a spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. It's entertaining, right? I'm talking about movies, television, music, social media, other popular entertainment. Sugar coats the deceptive, empty words with entertainment. It makes it easier for us to swallow. If they just came out and said it, We wouldn't be so inclined to listen to it, but when they build it into a compelling story with interesting characters that we like, it makes a difference. So our culture tends to swallow this philosophy, hook, line, and sinker. But if you want to know what, this is a composite of what Hollywood thinks of us as Christians. Here's just one example. Fundamentalism. Whether raining down terror abroad or in homilies from our home parishes is the enemy. So note what he says there. Raining down terror abroad, okay, talking about Muslim terrorists, right? Or homilies from our home parishes. So we apparently are in the same boat because of our quote-unquote fundamentalist Christian thinking. We are in the same boat as Muslim terrorists. So I want to make sure you caught that. It is the death knell of tolerance, progress, and compromise. Fundamentalism is, in all practicality, nothing but an invitation to bigotry. The next time someone dares to say, just because I don't approve of homosexuality doesn't make me a bigot, we must all answer back, yes, it does. Not only does it make you a bigot, it makes you a criminal, a danger to me, my family, my community, my city, and my country. Intolerance is not a matter of opinion, it is a call to violence. So that says pretty much everything we believe as followers of Christ is a call to violence. Paul might call these empty words. And what does that say about those empty words? What does he say? Let no one deceive you. This is an important thing for believers to remember in these days. Let no one deceive you. And there's a lot out there that can deceive us. What's more, Paul tells us in verse 7 and 8, therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. You're not there anymore, Paul's saying. So don't partner with them. You used to be like that. You're not anymore. When the message from our culture are deceptive and empty, we must be careful not to be led by darkness into darkness. Let's not forget what Paul read, the very first passage we read from Ephesians chapter 4. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, don't live like sinners in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So it's saying, again, don't live like unbelievers and Don't listen to them. Why? Their minds are futile, worthless. Those are pretty strong words. They don't understand light. Their hearts are hard. They are alienated from the life of God. Why should we listen to them? Now, I think it's important that we note that because of God's common grace, sometimes even our culture can speak words of truth or partial truths. But if we listen to and sometimes follow the lifeless, dark messages from our culture, it's just like letting the blind lead the blind. Jesus made a spiritual application to this danger of one blind person leading another when he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 39, he told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Jesus was talking about teachers here, specifically in the context of this passage, Pharisees. And what do teachers do? In very significant ways, they are life guides. They guide us through life. They help us through life. They show us the way in the context of what they're teaching. So in school, teachers teach us math and science and art and history. In church, teachers teach the application of the word of God to our lives about morality, about behavior, like we're doing this morning, about human nature, about character. But in our life, in this world, our culture and our society and our media especially teaches us too. Whether we realize it or not, whether we admit it or not, our culture teaches us lessons about the same kinds of things we're taught in church. So some of what we hear from our culture is good. Much of it is not. So, we must always ask ourselves this question: who's teaching me, and what are they teaching? The original language here for the word "lead" means to show the way," literally or figuratively, and in our context this morning, physically or spiritually, what did Jesus tell us? What did he say about himself? He said, "I am the way. I am the way." In the passage we just read in Luke six and there's another uh, take on the same thing in Matthew 15 14 where Jesus said leave them they are blind guides talking about the Pharisees the teachers if a blind man leads a blind man both will fall into a pit and the context here is actually the spiritually blind religious leaders of the day and these are the ones if you know your New Testament these are the ones who came in for the most criticism from Jesus the Pharisees Jesus called them blind guides and Jesus told his disciples we should leave them In other words, don't follow them. Don't pay attention to what they say. Why? Because they're blind. They're going to lead you right into the pit. Because they can't see the pitfalls of their own philosophy. They can't understand the spiritual truths, Jesus said, that I will teach you and I will enable you to see. If you do follow them, Jesus says, you'll both fall into a pit. So this is clearly a warning to us, and it's pretty unequivocal. And just as it's applied to some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we can apply to some religious leaders, quote-unquote, of our day, sadly. Within just a few years, we've seen a major dividing line become evident on many of these sexuality issues especially, which includes not just homosexual behavior, but any sexual immorality. For example, we haven't even looked at the prevalence of cohabitation before marriage, which is every bit as sinful, according to scripture, as is homosexual behavior. But again, these things are just the tip of the iceberg. They're just the things that we can easily lay our hands on and see, and they're so much low, so much below the water that we uh, can't see as well. They're the tip of the iceberg because the real issue here is biblical authority. And we'll take a look at that just a a little bit more in a moment. But this dividing line is not just in our culture, it's in our churches. There are churches and individuals that stand strong in biblical truth. I believe TCF is one of those churches. And then there are churches and individuals that kind of go with the cultural tide. So courage is required. But yet so is another Christian virtue, compassion. And that's just a hint of what we're going to look at next week. So The days are evil. The days are evil. Nobody's going to argue with me, right? But where does that leave us? The days are evil. Well, that's mostly for next week when we're going to explore another part of wise living. Today, we're looking at the primary reason that we must walk wisely because the days are evil. Next week, we'll look more closely at making the best use of the time. And this is where uh, Jim's Sunday night seminar comes in really is making application to these things that we see in Scripture about how to face this hostile culture that we live in, this sinful culture, because the days are evil. And we're going to look how to make the best use of the time and, as some versions say, redeeming the time in light of the fact that the days are evil. But I want to close with another important factor in today's look at walking wisely. Remember the things we looked at regarding spiritual blindness. Remember that we've seen that there are churches and individuals that have caved into the cultural tides on many things that the Bible calls sin. There's a very real foundational question to all of this. What's our authority? Who is our authority? Does God have the right to decide what's right and what's wrong? Does he have the right to decide that for me? what's good and what's evil what's best for us and what's not so good now if we don't believe in god then we have another issue to deal with because if you don't believe in god this is easy to dismiss that god should be the scripture should be our authority but if we do believe in god and you know paul still say that the majority of americans believe in god if we do believe in god then he's the creator he's the maker Doesn't the maker have the best understanding of what he's created? We talked about this in house church recently where we're studying Romans and we explored some of these scriptures including the one from Romans I read uh, just a moment ago. My wife had a great analogy of this issue of authority. Think of it this way. You buy a new car and the manufacturer's owner's manual says put gasoline into the car to fuel it, to make it run. It doesn't say water. Don't put water in. Nor Coca Cola, right? It says put gas in for fuel. But resisting the authority of the automaker, you could decide that water's cheaper. So I'm going to try that. But if you do, there are consequences, right? Your car not only won't run well if you put water in it, it won't run at all. You could end up also destroying your engine. Now, emotionally, You might say, I should be able to put any kind of fuel in my car that I want. After all, it's my car. I bought it. I paid for it, right? And of course you can. You're free to do that. You're free to ruin your car. But if the manufacturer says, don't put more than 10% ethanol gas in your car, and you ignore that or you rebel against the maker's standard, you risk the well-being of your car. And so it is with us. And so it is with us. God made us. He knows us intimately. Certainly better than even Ford or Chevrolet or Honda or Toyota know the cars they make that we drive every day. And because He knows us intimately and because He created us, He knows what's best for us, doesn't He? He knows what will make us thrive. He also knows the temporal, that is the this life, And eternal, that is the next life, consequences of sin in our lives. What's good for us and what's bad for us. And what's more, he has revealed the most spiritually important of these things to us in what? In his owner's manual. Now I don't want to demean scripture in any way by calling it just an owner's manual because it's so much more than that. Okay, But understand the illustration here. Okay? God knows what's best for us because He made us. He created us. And He's told us what's best in His Word because He loves us and He wants us to thrive. So read and understand the manual. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Read and understand this wonderful owner's manual that we have. The days are evil. Now, We can know how and why they're evil because he told us. But we can't deny it and we have to be on our guard. But thanks be to God that he has told us. He has told us and because he's told us, we can walk wisely as he says and not as fools. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you didn't leave us to flounder on our own and figure out how to best live this Christian life, this life that we have on earth. Lord, that you did leave us these instructions, and Lord, you did tell us what's right and wrong. Help us always, Heavenly Father, to see you and your word as our authority for the way we live our lives, Father God. And we trust, Heavenly Father, that as we know you more and we know you better, that you will help us see and more and understand more, Lord, of how to follow you wholeheartedly, how to serve you effectively, Lord, and fruitfully to advance your kingdom. We're grateful for these things, Father. We're grateful that even though the days are evil, that you are a sovereign God and you have a plan and you have a purpose. We pray that we would be mindful of these things each and every day, Lord, as we follow you in Jesus' name. Amen.